Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Greetings, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. We begin a four-part series today from my course entitled The Art of Asking Questions, which you can find at courses.clearandopen.com. I'll talk about the nature of curiosity, our poor conditioning about learning and what to do about it, how embarrassment can be productive, and a lot more. Again, this series is from the course, The Art of Asking Questions. I offer a weekly member webcast, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. If you don't do the assignments, you're essentially auditing the course, and that's fine. You have the freedom to do that and many other things in your life. Um, But what I would say is to fully get the value that the course has to offer, you do the assignments, A, and B, you send them to me, which is also an option. But if you're not doing that, it's not full engagement. And I would have a question. It's fun. This course is going to be really fun because I get to go meta to my questions and explain how and why I'm asking the questions. One of my favorite questions that I will talk a lot about is the question, why wouldn't you? If you have the option to run your work by me and get comments and suggestions and stuff, my question for you would be, why wouldn't you use that option? Why wouldn't you is a really good question to ask when the answer tends to be, well, I don't think I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to leave you being curious about what's good about the question, why wouldn't you? So we're two minutes in and I'm already uh, teasing you. And do you notice like, do you notice right now that there's a wondering, there's a curious look, well, what is the power of the question of why wouldn't you? Why, why is he asking that? Why won't he tell us? That brings you forward into your experience, doesn't it? You're no longer a passive receiver of information like most of our formal education is. It gets you engaged in a way of like, hmm, I want to know that because I almost told you and then I didn't, which again, it creates the, it puts you sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say on the edge of your seat. It wasn't that compelling per se, but, you know, an exaggeration to make a point uh, perhaps. Uh, So questions can be used to elicit that kind of engagement. Unfortunately, most of us our education was we were mm, sort of forced uh, by sort of by default to be put in passive receivers of information mode. And then we think that's learning because that's how school is set up. You all sit in these little rows in alphabetical order or whatever, and then the teacher talks at you and that's learning. Yeah, it turns out that's not really learning. <laughs> That's a very rudimentary, low-level elementary to fit, you know, because that's what elementary students do. But even at that age, you can uh, create that deeper kind of engagement. Um, just as a uh, s- semi-aside, I'm going to be asking you, uh, I'll give you a question right now to chew on, and then I want to hear from you guys. Why are you here? 
which is the question I usually begin courses with to find out, well, to find out why you're here and more. I'll, I'll talk about the power of that question also. But just a brief aside for, um, uh, there's a book called Make It Stick that is about modern education theory. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, and one of the examples they cite is if you take two sections of the same class, you know, the same class taught to different groups of people, and then section A uh, in a math class, the way most of us learn is you learn, for example, a formula. Here's the quadratic formula. Here's how you use it. Memorize it. Here's a problem set. Come back tomorrow, whatever, the next week, and, and uh, you know, learn how to use it and solve these problems. And then it, that's typically how we learn. In the second section, section B, you give them the problem sets before giving them the formula. You give them things that they need the quadratic formula for without giving them the formula. And then they twist and turn in the wind and can't figure it out. And they try all the things that they do know, which if you don't have the quadratic formula, you're just, if you remember your math well enough, you're just going to move stuff around and not really be able to solve it very well. And it will frustrate you. So you will probably not get any of the answers right. But what they find is if you teach math that way, at, by the end of the quarter, the, the kids who were not given what they needed initially to solve the problems end up with higher scores. But their experience is worse. You see? Their experience is more discomfort, more frustration. Some of them might get into the puzzle aspect of it, but it creates cr greater engagement and more discomfort. And this is one of the problems with education these days. We're at a time in our uh, history and history of education where we're very attentive to the experience of the learner. And there's this idea of like different learning styles and oh, this person needs this and this person needs this and not everybody has the same learning style. And that's really cool. That's an evolution for uh, education. The uh, recognition of individual needs, which, you know, is anti-assembly line, uh, you know, treating everybody like little worker bees who are going to go out in the work world and produce widgets or whatever. So it's an advancement. But I, what I would argue is that that pendulum, which swung from not seeing people as individualistic enough has gone too far and it's giving people too much individualistic rope because the studies show and make it stick talks about this. If you uh, test, if you give, if, how do I say this? If you, if you teach a group of people a certain way and you teach another group of people a certain way and several groups of people, different ways, you know, auditory, visual examples, whatever different ways. And, and you test all of them. And you also ask them what their preferred learning method was, especially if you teach them multiple ways. You test them on their retention and their understanding and also ask them, did they like this learning method? People, it turns out, are a poor evaluator of how they learn best. Let me say that again. People, by and large, do not know how they learn best. We think we do. We think we do. Also see uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, TED Talk on spaghetti sauce, which is one of my favorite TED Talks of all time. If you just search for Malcolm Gladwell spaghetti sauce, you'll find it on YouTube. He says, uh, he's talking about it in the context of marketing and how people don't know themselves. He says, if I were to survey this audience and ask you what kind of coffee you liked, the majority of you would say you like a thick, rich, dark roast. 
And then if I were to do a taste test and actually get the data that shows, shows what you like, the majority of you would like milky, weak coffee. These are just facts. So what explains that and why that is, is a whole other story. And I've talked about that in other courses, self-image and whatnot. But one of the key things to understand about learning is you, you're, you've been conditioned poorly around learning. You've been conditioned to have your learning either be passive, boring, and or too comfortable. Real learning is active. Real learning is curious. Real learning is engagement. And it's not comfortable. It shouldn't be too uncomfortable, but it shouldn't be like you just sit there and like if you can fall asleep in the class, like I always wonder about that. Like, you know, imagine being a high school teacher and you have kids falling asleep in your class. And of course, I understand why it's upsetting, but do these people ever ask themselves why their kids are falling asleep? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I had one really good high school teacher who radically changed my life. And he uh, was a former law professor. And the way he taught these high school classes was um, just how a lot of law schools, um, from what I understand, are, uh, are structured. And that is there's reading. And then in the beginning of the following class, he's going to choose someone to have a conversation with about the reading. And you don't know who it's going to be. And so imagine the aliveness of a group of 16-year-olds, you know, 25, 30, 16-year-olds who just had to do 60 pages of reading and the bell rings and uh, he's looking at the class list and everyone's thinking, oh my God, am I just about to get um, chosen? And you get one excuse per quarter, I think it was. You could say, you know, I didn't do the reading and that was okay. After that, it would drop your grade one third or something like that. But the tension you could feel in the air was like, you know, I mean, you think someone was about to be pulled out of the room and shot or something. It was terrifying. And one time I got chosen and I had fallen asleep uh, while doing the reading and I had to be, uh, I will never, I remember word for word what happened. I'm still mortified to this day because of that. But that emotional energy, that stress, even though it's not comfortable, it creates engagement. Because after that moment where I was mortified by having, I was literally kind of making some stuff up. The question was, who were the Teutonic Knights? And my first answer was, they were a bunch of guys. <laughs> and the teacher said, hold on, let me get this. And he wrote, Teutonic Knights, one dot, a bunch of guys to sort of be playful with me, but I was also embarrassed. Now, that's another really interesting thing about learning. Embarrassment has been, at least in some studies, positively associated with learning. See uh, Brene Brown for research on this. It's split. There's some people who think embarrassment is not good. But what I would say is, and Brene Brown talks about this, um, and she's done far more research certainly than I have as a social scientist, that the distinction between embarrassment and humiliation is the key. Embarrassment is, is defined in these social science circles as when you feel bad about it and you deserve it. So for example, um, you know, uh, in my case, you know, I, I didn't do the reading well enough and I'm floundering and I said something, you know, barely intel intelligible, any, but any kind of nights would be easy to say it's a bunch of guys, right? So that's not a very good answer. In other words, you could say I deserved or earned the embarrassment. It was appropriate to be embarrassed because I said something 
where I embarrassed myself. And so the teacher just went with that and said, okay, let me write this down. That's embarrassment. Now, if he had said, uh, good one, Joseph, got any other bright ideas? That would be adding an extra amount. Um, or if he had said, um, uh, you know, uh, did you fall asleep on your work last night? Or did you have a brain? Here's a good one. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast or something? That would be humiliation. That would be an insult. That, that's uncalled for. Humiliation is negatively associated with learning. Embarrassment is not. But who would choose embarrassment as part of their learning? Nobody would. Nobody's like, oh, yeah, boy, let me get some embarrassment. I really like feeling that. So, again, back to that principle of people uh, don't know actually how they learn. They don't know. And that's why if you have, you know, see uh, a tutor for mental body training or a personal trainer for physical body training, if you have a trainer who's, you know, when you stop and, you know, drop the weights on the last set and the trainer says you're going to do one more set, if they weren't there, you wouldn't do it right? So they push you harder. So all of this is to say that um, curiosity, asking questions, uh, digging to find what the truth is, these are not comfortable things. And this is one of the reasons why curiosity is so atrophied in our culture. Because, and Joseph's the broken record again, you've heard me say this before, if you've heard me talk much at all, is we choose comfort over curiosity. You can't have both. If you're not okay with discomfort, which includes, for example, subjecting yourself to deserved embarrassment, reasonable embarrassment, if you're not okay with that, then you will turn down the volume of, on your curiosity and you will learn less. You will become less mature, less intelligent, less conscious. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that clear and open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.